So most of those things came about as a result of trying things in the UI and going, yeah, that doesn't work. We sort of learned by doing, you know, a lot of what we're reporting now is sort of 2020 hindsight where, you know, yeah. the kinds of things that you would normally do for text would go, mm, you know, that's broken. What do we do about it? And then we would solve the problem. Hey, everybody. I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. Welcome to the weekly typographic. Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice. It's going to be fun. Let's jump in. Today on the podcast, we have Eben Sorkin and Mirko Vilimirovic, the designers of the new open source typeface Spline Sands. Spline Sands is an original typeface initiated by the team at Spline, our favorite design tool for creating 3D experiences on the web. Today, we're taking a look behind the scenes and chatting about what it was like creating a typeface for UI and how the very talented Eben and Mirko collaborated with each other as well as the greater Spline team. From the Spline team, the typeface was project managed by Frida Mareb with testing and design feedback by Gonzalo Teixeira. And the concept was by Spline founder Alejandro Leon. A little bit about our guest today. Eben Sorkin is a Massachusetts-based type designer, the founder of Sorkin Type Co., and the chief designer at Darden Studio. You've certainly seen his work in familiar places. He has contributed immensely to the open source type movement. His typeface Meriwether can be found on Google Fonts. And he's contributed to large collaborative undertakings like the type family Halyard. One of his most famous projects was his work on the design of the letters in the YouTube logo, which was recently updated for a greater range of optical sizes and for reverse color. Mirko Velimirovic is a Brooklyn-based type designer, font engineer, lettering artist, and founder of Abyss Type Company. He's contributed to projects at Darden Studio and various open source variable fonts on GitHub. He was the previous chapter lead at Type Thursday New York City and has taught at the Center for Book Arts. Mirko recently wrapped up work on a font for people with low vision through the Emily Carr University of Art and Design, which can be found at opticalfont.com, as well as a font for the Edward Gorey Charitable Trust, based on Edward Gorey's handwriting. And a little bit more about the typeface they made together, which you can download on Google Fonts. Blind Sans is a grotesque sans serif built for small-scale text on the web. Whether that's user interfaces, checkout processes, or paragraphs of text, this new typeface has got you covered. By condensing traditional grotesque proportions, Spline Sands has efficient spacing built in, and its cool restrained tone is accented with strategic thorn traps, which blossom into view when set at large sizes. Welcome, Evan and Mirko. Hello. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Thanks for having us, yes. It is awesome to have two legends with us today. Oh my God. <laughs> You're too kind. Yeah. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the world out there knows this, but two fun facts that I'm going to throw in. I learned most of what I know about type design from Evan back when he was doing crafting type. And Mirko literally had a huge impact on the league from working on league fonts as open source projects. Oh, so yes, that's true. Legends <laughs> is not an understatement. Oh, thank you. I think we it's try our be best. really fun. Both of you guys just have obviously worked on great projects with great people well-known in the type design world. And this is, I was saying earlier, this is kind of our first interview where it's just dedicated to a behind-the-scenes look at developing a typeface. I think it's interesting because it's an open-source typeface. It's built specifically for UI, so that's 
pretty unique path that not everyone kind of knows the ins and outs of. So we'll get into the technical details and also a typeface by two people. We want to hear about like how that works and how that was, you know, created using uh, help from the spline team as well. So I have a whole bundle of questions, but I definitely wanted to start kind of from the beginning. You know, what were the beginning phases of Spline Sands? How were you briefed into the project? Sounds like Alejandro from Spline worked on the concept for it, but then how did concept prompt you guys to work on the typeface and how did you put ideas to paper? There's just some ideas to think about, but you can take it away in your own, in your own words. Sure. Evan, do you want to talk about how you got invited to work on it or sort of scouted out? Right. I got sort of headhunted to do it. I think Frida knew about the work that I had done on the update to the YouTube font. And I guess yeah. it's worded, filtered through to her somehow. And I got headhunted. And then I thought, I'm really busy. I can't really do this all on my own right now. And it's also, it's just way more fun to collaborate. And I thought, who do I want to collaborate with right now? And who is a good fit for this? So I had seen all kinds of stuff that Mirko had done. And I just thought, Mirko's going to bring that spark. And we also... I should say we were lucky enough to have like worked previously together. We had done work together in the past. And so it didn't seem like, um, I guess, too far outside of like the realm of possibility. And Frida is a good friend of mine. And we'd done lettering for, for book covers for Kenning Editions together. And so there is like a sort of familiarity, I think, between, between all of us. But we hadn't undertaken like such a large project before. And so it was exciting to for you to like get it from spine, right? And them to be like, we have this huge <laughs> concept from Alejandro, yeah. right? Like he wanted to change the typography out. He wasn't happy with them. Um, I don't want to name names of whatever they had before. Because I don't like, I don't like when like type designers snipe at each other. Well, it's not necessarily a problem with the typeface, but it's like a typeface for spline for what they were looking for, right? Right. It was more like that. It didn't fit their needs. I mean, that's the right way to start to design a five-page or sort of the ideal way, because then you have an itch, then you have a chance to scratch it. And then if you do that really well, it may be that the typeface is also good for other things. But typefaces that don't have a real reason for being can sometimes struggle. And the thing about this typeface is that it was produced in a kind of a record amount of time. We really got it done fast. But you know specific. that was only possible because it was really, really clear what we were trying to do from an engineering point of view, from a typographic point of view, and from an aesthetic point of view. And that's a lot of stars to align, really, all at once. So that's the thing in my mind still that's sort of special about that. that Maybe project. to jump off of that and sort of go back to the, the question that's being asked about how did we start, right? I mean... There was the getting like brought in and being chosen as like, oh, this is the right guy for the job. And then you reaching out to me and saying like, we've got this great project. Would you like to help out? And I was obviously I was like, yeah, of course, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to work with you <laughs> again. But going to what you were saying about how we got it sort of done in record time and why that was possible, it started with very specific constraints, right? It was like, well, we don't like a lot of people don't like the type they're using perhaps, or it's not doing exactly what they want it to do. So it's very clear, like, we need type for UI, right? Like, we need our app to actually shine. And the type they were using in the, in the UI wasn't doing exactly what they wanted, and they, they wanted it to be a lot clearer. So we had very strict constraints, and I think that constraints are extremely 
extremely helpful. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you can do and anything. I think the type that they had was doing a good job, but the right. great thing about Spline is they're really not satisfied with that. They want great. Right. For everything they're doing. That's a, that's a wonderful place to, to be coming from. Mm-hmm. Kind of piggybacking off of that, since you were kind of comparing it to what they maybe had before, what makes splines different from other grotesques sans serifs? Or what were some of the technical restraints that you had or some of the asks that spline was really looking for to represent, you know, spline themselves as they have initiated the project? I have a couple of ideas. Evan, do you want to? So, I mean, from from my point of view, because I've been making stuff for open source for a while, the thing about open source projects is that if you do a good open source project in general, and I think this isn't wrong, you tend to try to make something where it's going to have fairly broad utility. And broad utility means that you're going to have a tone which sort of embraces a lot of different uses. And it might vary a little bit, you know, sort of having your arms quite wide in terms of the flavor of the thing and not being too much this, too much that, sort of really right down the middle tends to be the way that these things go. And like I say, I don't think that that's wrong, but it has created a situation where for sans serifs that can get used for text or UI and so on, you do have like a little bit of a sameness in tone across quite a number of different families. And I thought with this and with the personality of Spline, we have an opportunity to create a more contemporary style offset because the Spline... Uh, visual identity, like the kinds of things that, that you see people making in Spline, it's all quite sort of, it's sweet colors, it's sweet shapes, it's soft, round things. And that's really cool. But if you're doing that, if your typeface also embraces that, it's sort of maybe a bit too much. So we brought a little salt to the sugar and we took the typeface and we made it cooler and more restrained. And I think that that was great because it allowed us to work a little bit more quickly. We weren't trying to be too florid. And it allowed us to focus on what was going to be different also, which is the, the thing that we looked at in the very beginning of the process. You know, what are we going to do to cope with the fact that we're using this pretty small? We don't want to make a true micro. We want something where we're, we're addressing screen issues and screen rendering issues, but we want it to be interesting enough when you blow it up that it's really going to be exciting. And that's where Mirko, he created a number of different approaches that we looked at and we tried them all we trialed them all and they had different aesthetic values and they had different optical properties and then we ended up choosing one that you see now there's a couple of things on that maybe this is getting into the technical nitty-gritty before we need to but when you asked about like what what really sets it apart olivia we thought a lot about what evan just mentioned which is like flavor early on and how far we really wanted to go. Because we could have done something like very, very expressive. And we did have some very expressive on-paper sketches to begin with, right? But we found that that was, it didn't fit in the constraints. So there's still glimmers of like these like really exciting, expressive ideas, right? And I think that they kind of come into their own when you set it like really large. But the intention <laughs> was to make something constrained, narrower, but still very legible, <laughs> And then we also, we were doing a lot of testing with it just early on too, even with like the very, very limited character set uh, seeds that we'd started with. We would take, I can't remember who did it with Steven Nixon, but you know, the, the tool Typex, it's like a browser font injector. So since Spline, their whole product, right, is like a web-based 3D design tool, we were able to inject our tests 
directly into the app and see exactly how they were working cool. with their uh, design. And, and with that, it also made us realize a couple of things, things like, oh, the numbers are going to be extremely important, right? It's like, mm-hmm. not that numbers are really an afterthought in, in type usually, but like, oh no, our figures like actually have to really, really stand out within the narrow set of constraints that we had. And so seeing that early really helped. And also I think it, Eben, really sparked your, um, I remember you saying this a lot, even early on, you said, well, we're not setting like a book, we're setting an app. And so that's a very different set of thought processes that you need to bring to the design of the thing rather than like, it's like, yes, color is still extremely important. And I think that we established really good color, but we're establishing really good color initially for the app space and the input of, or in the, the UI, right, of the app, rather than I think starting the way you might with like uh, long paragraphs of text. Because if you're looking at a letter and you're identifying what you're looking at, you're going, you know, that's an L or that's a one or that's an I, you have little clues. And if you're reading a paragraph, you can tell from context what the word is likely to be. Mm-hmm. One of the ways that we read, in addition to identifying individual letters or recognizing the pattern of a word, is to anticipate. But in UI, you have none of that. <laughs> yeah. So all of your emphasis has to be on making sure that whatever letter or number you're dealing with that is completely disambiguated. And so we had to be more severe with that and more intentional about that. Severe differentiation. Sorry, let me go ahead. (laughs) That's super insightful. Talking about how you're seeing some characters in isolation rather than in paragraphs of text is a good way to talk about like strategies for designing a UI font, which quite honestly, I don't feel like there's been that many conversations or resources on designing for UI specifically. I think as someone that has taught a little bit of typography too, I've, you know, taught the difference between a typeface design for text and a typeface design for display. And there's really obvious like formal differences between those. How would you guys describe the differences between a small scale text typeface that in general, it's like something text, you know, has it in the name versus something specifically designed for UI. You mentioned really being super non-ambiguous about some characters, but are there other qualities that really came into play for that rather than just small scale? It's small scale text on the web specifically. One thing would be maybe spacing because If you make a type for text, having a relatively generous spacing between letters is something you want to be able to to have. And I mean, it's on a continuum, obviously. And the differences are maybe quite subtle. But when you have this stuff masked up or you're trying to fit a word into a UI, then these little differences begin to add up in a significant way. So yeah, we found that we're spacing things a little tighter than we would if we were making something for very small text even though we were setting things small because we needed to get things to fit. The other thing that we had to do is we had to look at characters where in running text, we might want them to be a little more generous because it would create more variation in rhythm, let's say. And instead of sort of permitting that, we'd say, well, we are going to let this be a little narrower. We'll choose the narrower option because we'll be able to fit more in. So most of those things came about as a result of trying things in the UI and going, yeah, that doesn't work. We sort of learn by doing, you know, a lot of what we're reporting now is sort of 2020 hindsight where, you know, the kinds of things that you would normally do for text, we'd go, you know, that's broken. What do we do about it? And then we would solve the problem. We also found with, I mean, with the narrowness of the thing and not those constraints, I mean, literally the semi-condensed nature of the entire font that we, we opened the X site up a lot. Yeah. We really borrowed from 
I don't want to say Barlet or Stoll or any of those things. I say we looked at we, we looked at some very masterful early designs that still hold up, right? Yeah. I mean, Verdana, you don't want to set your UI in Verdana, but if you did, it wouldn't look bad, right? Like it actually like Verdana's so well done. Like of well, course Verdana's really big in the M, like, and that's a great thing or a great approach to kind of steal from. There are downsides to it because you're setting Vietnamese, you know, you mm-hmm. don't have as much room for diacritics on top and so you know there are trade-offs to be made but we definitely stood on the shoulders of some giants yeah that gets into also like one of the other constraints that doesn't show up early in the project but is something we had to think about sort of midway through and towards the end is we're not just making this for a single client right we're we're making it to be open sourced and so the constraints of what you're supposed to do best practices for like Libre fonts, which have evolved like significantly since like the launch of Google fonts in like 2010, right? There's a very robust system of testing that you have to go through. And some of those things, eventually Vietnamese for, for spline sands become pretty important, at least leaving the room for uh, stack diacritics, that sort of thing. And so it's a lot of balancing. Yeah. All of that was super insightful. Even the mention of Verdana, I feel like everyone loves to leave that world of digital type behind and say, you know, let's move on and not look back. But I love hearing that that was something that, you know, you were, you were able to find some nuggets of nuggets of typographic truth for the web in there. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I mean, also web browsers have been using Verdana as a reference for a really long time. And the fact that Verdana was as big in the M as it was made everything else look small. You're like, why aren't all these other fonts as good as Verdana? It kind of, it set a kind of a different kind of benchmark as set it as a separate kind of experiential expectation. So, I mean, I don't think we went full Verdana on this. No. But we definitely, we're making reference to the engineering qualities of it. Yeah, the engineering side of it really is. And I would just say, I think it's because, you know, Carter really came from that world, right? Like he really thought about things at scale. So if there's one thing we really stole, it's it's the thought process of really thinking at scale and are, you know, using TypeX and the actual testing in app informed all that, right? Like it was, like you said, Evan, learning by doing, right? <laughs> it's scientific, right? It's experimenting, right? And finding the right solutions to those experiments. And I think that's what allowed us to be successful and move quickly is we knew right away if what we were doing was right or wrong. And sometimes I think it's more ambiguous. The early part of the project too, you know, we were able to show the client what the thing would perform like. And to see what the different feelings were. And so if the poetry of one thing really appealed or didn't, you know, we would hear about that quite quickly. And the fact that as clients, they were so great about saying how they felt about something and why, you know, because they're coming from a creative tool, you know, they had as clients, I think a, a little bit bigger tool set for communicating with us and that we were really grateful for that. Yeah. How did the process exactly start? Clearly, Spline was unhappy, or they were like, this font we're using right now is adequate, but we want something that's really ours. Did they give you personality descriptors and technical descriptors? Did they give you examples of type that's almost there, but not quite? What were you exactly given as the parameters? We got all of that from them. Normally, you have to build a brief with a client. You have to ask a lot of questions. And they came with, you know, not a fully made brief because they're not type designers. They, mm-hmm. you know, wouldn't know everything to put in the basket, but it was about half full. And so that was a great head start. And the other half was like we described 
They came with more than any client I've ever <laughs> like worked with, right? They came with, you know, we want it to do this. Here's like the use that we need it for. Here are some of our ideas about aesthetics. And they're coming from three different directions with the aesthetics, which is really useful. Alejandro had like a specific vision. He's like, I want the app to look this way. And then Gonzalo, one of their designers who worked really closely with us, uh, he was like, well, you know, I have like these requirements for setting the vertical metrics, you know, so that it'll look correct in our app. And then Farida, who's done so much wonderful book typography, had so many ideas along the path of like designing the thing. She's like, well, you know, like, I don't feel like our ampersand is doing exactly what I'd like it to do. Could you please redraw it? And we'd be like, yeah, okay, sure. But yeah, not only did she facilitate yeah. the conversations, but she also had aesthetic inputs. So it was really, that was a wonderful thing. Yeah, it sounds like a very well-rounded feedback coming from a few different directions too and everyone contributing to the vision. How would both of you describe the typeface in both technical descriptors, which I know we've talked a little bit about you know, narrower proportions and stuff like that, and then how would you also describe it with personality descriptors? Well, I'm looking at our, we have these, these questions written up and I'm looking at our earlier our, ideas our, about our how we were, <laughs> our little, our little <laughs> cliff notes on, well, I mean, I, you want to read your bet or do you want to say your bet? I actually <laughs> don't have it in you. front of me. Um, yeah. <laughs> the feeling of the typeface is like we were saying before, is quite chilly and restrained. It owes a little bit of its feeling to very early grotesque, which is a kind of a thing, which is a bit fashionable these days, but it's also kind of a neo grotesque in the sense that it stays relatively monoline for most of its body shape. But when it comes to joins, it pinches down pretty hard. And so part of that's fashion, you know, that's the contemporary style. But part of it is that it really does work in small sizes for things to be relatively monoline and to be really severe when you're dealing with joins is good at small sizes. It, it really just helps to keep the counters from getting included. And then the innovation that Mirka brought in the way that we handle these little things we're calling thorns, they're sort of like ink traps, but because they have this sort of thorny shape in this particular case, yeah, we're calling them thorns. And, uh, and we were, I would say, reticent a little bit to really go down the road of just fashionable ink traps. Like, we didn't want to make bell bottoms, you know? No, I mean, bell bottoms are cool again, but we weren't trying to go overboard as like, well, the whole, we didn't want to make a gimmick, right? So we found that they actually worked and we tested them <laughs> to make sure that they were working. Rather than, I think sometimes we add a lot of idiom or like affect to type we're drawing because we think like this will be the cool fashion for the summer or whatever. But it's like we wanted to make something that would last for them, but still have this flavor. So yeah, to get to the technical descriptors versus like personality descriptors, I, we keep saying the word severe, but I think earlier you said something, Evan, salt to the sugar. And it's like, yeah, there's like, there's such a sweetness to like the designs that people are making in Spline. Not always sweet. I mean, it's like their marketing stuff, but they're, you know, I've seen like designs all over the place. I would say we like made something that doesn't try to steal the show compared to like the, you know, right? Like type can steal the show very easily. It's so expressive. But if you're trying to make something that's going to work as the color that you're adding to your model of the Eiffel Tower or something, right? You don't, you want the Eiffel Tower to show up. You don't want the type to steal the show there. Yeah, yeah. We are trying to keep it quiet. But if you use it really big, the thorns that, that, uh, that Mirko invented, they are pretty passionate looking, actually, once the type is big. So there's like a little surprise hiding in the typeface. I think I, 
I wrote in my notes for this, I was like, looked a lot at, and I said Eiffel Tower, but moving away from that style of architecture, we really looked at a lot of modernist forms, not just like graphic design, where it's like really monumental forms that are like joining in very, very tight spaces and sort of affecting this like almost like weightlessness of monumentality. <laughs> I thought a lot about, I went to this MoMA exhibition of Yugoslavian brutalist architecture and what they were able to do with massive concrete slabs, but they still made it feel like airy or floating concrete, right? And we're, we're trying to make like this really foundational piece of the app. And there's like little glimmers of that floating monumentality deep in there, but we didn't want them to be like the, uh, <laughs> I don't know, the face of the thing. It's, it's in there, but it's quiet, right? <laughs> That's probably my, my greatest satisfaction in the thing is that, you know, it's very usable. It does a job that other LibreFonts aren't doing yet. And it also has these aesthetic treat that if you use it bigger, you'll, you can begin to discover. I love that. I want you two to describe every typeface out there to me. I love the range that we were able to fulfill on that spectrum. That was great. Of the tactical to the more abstract. I loved hearing that. You know, when, when type is your friend, you're sitting inside for two years, you know, you start to learn a lot about all the different personalities of the fonts you're living with. That's like... Very fair. Very Just fair. Just like my my cats, fonts, they all have personalities, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, as we kind of move the conversation to more so the process side of things, I'm curious, what was it like collaborating on a typeface? What was it like with two people solving the spline brief and then also developing it into what seems like a very successful workflow that you had throughout the process? And then how did you divvy up the work? Who did what? Oh my goodness. That's such a good question. <laughs> it's like Because I've been designing typeface for a little bit longer than, than Mirko, then I was the one who created the framework and sort of ordered the questions that would be get answered and sort of ordered the process a bit and tried to assert as much limitation as I could, sort of taking everything the client had brought and seeing what else I could like cut off. There's this great design tool that was invented by uh, Peter van Blockland. The tool that he made is brings a lot of insight. What he does in the in this thing called the design game is he says there's an analogy that he offers where he says the fastest way to get to to find something in a tree is to sort of figure out where it's not. So you begin chopping limbs off the tree and then if you can know, okay, it's not on this half of it, then now you just can focus on the other side of the tree. And then you kind of keep on doing that and eliminate as much as possible. Then you can really get focused on where is it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of type design is, is really, if it's done moderately efficiently, it will be done like that. You'll say, what isn't it? And that's a great way of, of finding what it is. The design for, for Spline was done very much that way, trying to eliminate as many things early on as possible. With a sort of a dalliance in the beginning, sort of an allowance for trying to find what was going to be special. What's the source of the special flavor of this thing? And that's where Mirko came in because Mirko began sketching. We both made sketches, but we'd push them back and forth and work on them. But we came up with a series of ideas. And in the end, the one that was really the very best fit was one that, that Mirko invented. I don't know how many of these sketch ideas we, we ultimately had. Something like nine, maybe? Oh, we did so many. But we kept on saying, what if, what if, what if? But, you know, we had room for that because the rest of the process was very, very, very nailed down. And so we had a, we had a very, it's not just restraints from the brief, but it's like, 
time, right? Which is, I think, kind of what Evan's getting at with the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Evan, but with the design game by Peter von Blockland, you have like a limited time. That's one of the lessons of the game when you like play the game. He does this at typographics occasionally. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't done this as like a designer, I'd say like it's a super useful learning experience. You learn from the design game that he calls it, or just the game. I don't know, maybe it's like just the game, but it's this game that, that you play where you're given a brief and then it's like, well, you only have this amount of time. And so I think when you start to translate that into real world projects, you're like, well, we only have this amount of time. That's one of the constraints on the design. And we want to give part of that time so we can be successful. It's like, we actually have to build a foundation. It's like art school. What they tell you is like, you need to actually experiment. And we were so lucky that our client actually was like, yeah, we agree. You do actually need to experiment to find the right thing. And I said, oh, we did so many sketches, but it's like, yeah, we really did like spend a couple of weeks, like two weeks, I think, just uh, drawing and drawing and sending it back and forth. And this is getting back to your, to the actual question, Olivia, like, how did we collaborate and divvy up the work? And to begin with, you know, Evan was like, well, we've got these constraints, but I want us to experiment. And we really did. And then after that, it developed two ways. And this is something that, you know, it's like a get person. I'm like, I've really changed my mind about this recently, but I don't think type can really start as like a git repo. <laughs> it kind of has to start as this sort of organic thing. And eventually at some point it becomes developed enough after sending files back and forth and saying like, okay, you work on this part of the bold and I'll work on this part of the light. And then, you know, merging files together and sitting down in hours long meetings, just uh, touching spacing together. It's just like pair programming, really, be how I described the, like, the, the process. And then at the end of it, or somewhere in like the last 25% of the project, you start to move into the open sourcing aspect of it, which is getting it into a repo with a specific structure, like the unified font repository, and then building and testing and building and testing and still doing like drawing tweaks. And, but then it becomes very regimented because you're, you're sort of constrained by the version control system. But since we've both worked on other projects together that require that for Darden Studio. And for Google as well. And for Google as well. Yeah, we've done yeah. stuff on that. So it's like, since we've done both of those things and have done them at least for some, like, because sometimes you'll like work on like a, a font that's been out for a long time, right? But it's like suddenly there needs to be like Kazakh or something, right? And it needs to be spaced and all of this. And it's like, oh, it's due in like a week. And Evan and I have done that before. So I think the like, the thing that could be a really difficult learning process was actually just something we were already familiar with. So we were like, once we hit that stage of it, we, I think we could have hit a real hurdle, but we were like, oh, we've done this before. We'll, <laughs> we'll just do it together. <laughs> we were really lucky too, because we were kind of coming in a little early. There was room for people on the team to say, you know, this six and nine don't work for me. Or mm -hmm. it would be great if the question mark had like a little more, you know, something else. And so there was more room to sort things out and to refine the little details that, that gave the, the client satisfaction. So you mentioned a little bit about working with the Spline team and how they were able to provide feedback. We're definitely curious. It seems like a very positive experience that both of you had. What was it like collaborating with the Spline team? And you know, was everyone in on feedback sessions? Alejandro really drove the concept for this. So how was that concept being brought to life? Like what kind of feedback were you usually receiving from the team? Basically, yeah, the meetings are great. They're such a busy group of people, right? They're building this whole spectacular tool, which is like, it's going to have collaboration soon, which is wild. Like, I know that that's sort of a, Whoa. I mean, that's a totally different thing from like what we're, <laughs> what we worked on, but like, um, I've used Spline for other, uh, 
client work and I'm going on a tangent here, but I've, I've used Spline for other client work or like type animations and stuff. And like if a guy who just draws type can use a 3D tool, there's something right there. But in terms of how we met with them, yeah, it was like all hands on, on deck every time and every single person in the team. So Frida, Alejandro, Gonzalo, right? They always had, it wasn't like, oh, here's like a monolith of feedback. It was like they each have their own things that they've reviewed over like the week between meetings and they would bring that up in a we have like a document with like the that's a really good point because often when you're doing something for a client you need to set everything for them and then they react to the thing you set in the meeting right so in this case that's not what was going on we were giving them early versions they were getting to try it out and you know if something didn't feel right a shoe was too tight or whatever it was then we would hear about it it really was very practical and it saved us time because we could just work on the type instead of having to set lots and lots of stuff, I think probably was responsible for some of the speed. Um, yeah. Because we, we didn't have to do as much reference making for them. Right. Having a client that knows how to typeset. <laughs> Word of the wise, right? And is actively typesetting. And, yeah. and is actively typesetting what you're giving them and being like, this isn't working, or this is working really well, or could we get some alternates for these characters that were not as like, thrilled about and then it's like okay well that also means that we end up getting like a bunch of alt characters but they're like we like both of them but we want this one to be the standard one you know sometimes i think i've drawn projects where i'm like oh if i have some time i'll add stuff that i think is fun and i'll put it in like you know sso1 or ss7 or something you know like i'll make open type features for things that i think are fun for me but with them it was like you know we like all of these ideas, but here are the ideas we like the most. And, you know, please develop all of it. But these are the ones that we really want. And we think these are working like the best. And so it was very, very hands-on. And um, I'm a person who's like not generally very optimistic, but I can't give them enough <laughs> praise. Like you don't usually get a client that's so good, <laughs> like giving feedback. I mean, it's interesting too, because it's a software product. Presumably they're using Git on their end as well. So was it basically just like... They have access to the repository and they would pull it down and use the most recent version. So that when I was talking about the like engineering end of things, right, which is like, I mean, this is where I'm like changing my mind about how much and I've talked to Mackle about this as well. Like other fun, like we talk about this in Darden studio occasionally when there's like uh, keeping projects up to date or something, right? It's like, everyone seems to have a different <laughs> conception of how to get files to where they're supposed to be. So for us, we would just send them the files. Like we would export for about the first like 75% of the project. We'd, and that's not a, that's just a number I made up. But for the majority of it, we would just, we'd be exporting and testing ourselves and then, and then sending them files. But near the end, right? And when it starts to get closer towards going up to Google, right? Like uh, they started getting the builds we were making with Google process, which is, a little bit different. I don't know if we need, if you want us to get too deep into that, but there is a big difference between make TTS for the client and then going through the process of actually getting the thing published on Google Fonts, because Google Fonts has a set of requirements that are specific to them, which are very technical. And if you want something published rapidly, then you need to meet those requirements. And one of the things that Mirko brought in the team is a real familiarity with that and the ability to pivot to new requirements. Because even though the project was quite short, new requirements popped up during the course of making the project. So he was able to adapt to all of that. And we got, you know, Spline Sans UI 
into Google Fonts in I think a record time. Also, I should also say, like, like, not only did we make it in record time, but it also went up and public in record time too. I mean, some um, of that also has to do with the Google Fonts team has been making a lot of progress towards rationalizing their own process. I want to say, yeah, not to dissuade people from, like we say, oh, it's so hard, it's so difficult. But like, in all honesty, if you have a font you want to open source, it's easier now than it has ever been to get these things to Google if that's your prerogative, right? You have to test it, of course, with like Font Bakery and that you can do locally now. But also if you set up the unified font repository correctly <laughs> and you use it as a template, all right, and it will do the testing for you and generate the fonts for you. And then you just have to make sure it's all tidy and copacetic with like their, and you probably know about typography, but you, you start to learn a lot about how fonts as software function when you start to read through all of your font bakery um, reports, because you'd be like, I didn't know that my vertical metrics were doing that, or I didn't know that that was a problem, or I didn't know that I needed to like use type of metrics or you know, things that are like. Uh, maybe skimmed over in design school, <laughs> but are super important to fonts as software. So, yeah. Yeah, Font Bakery is a great tool. You do learn about the guts of your typeface in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And I guess that's where it's evolving because as people learn new things about how type works on the web, Font Bakeries, or just type in general, they add constantly new checks to Font Bakery. Realize we haven't really explained what Font Bakery is, and I don't know if that's like a, it's a it's a font testing tool. <laughs> it's font QA. Yeah, there you go. It's quality assurance for your for your type. Yeah, it's technical uh, quality assurance as opposed to visual quality assurance. But it's free and open source, and anyone can go use it. And they, I would say they should because it's even if you disagree with what it's telling you, at least you know more about <laughs> more about your uh, your font. You can open an issue. It's good to hear what you guys are using for testing because I feel like if you're an emerging designer or young designer, you're you're like I, I'm sure they do testing, but like where does that happen and yeah, how, how do does I that, do that work? <laughs> so exactly all the stuff that you can't learn in art, in art and design or type school, like come bring it all on the podcast. <laughs> we want to get that out there and disseminate <laughs> that sure. information. So before helped art directed typeface that was being designed for a client, and sometimes clients don't exactly know how to articulate specific feedback to a type designer because it's like a lot of really minutia, obviously a lot of understanding the anatomy. Was the feedback that you were receiving from the spline team, because they're all design oriented, was it really specific about type design, nitty gritty stuff? Or was it more kind of abstract, like we don't like the feeling this is giving us because A, B, and C, you think? It was really all that, but there was another thing going on too, which was that they had already, because I think they had, had looked at what can we use, you know, I think their their choice to make a font wasn't arrived at quickly or easily. They had looked at a lot of other types and they knew what they liked in those types and they knew what they didn't like in their types. So they were very self-educated already. And so they, mm. they would bring examples of, we think this type does this thing better than what you're offering now. What can we do to adopt that approach in our in our design? And sometimes it was something to do with a join or sometimes it was construction. Mm, okay. For instance, we have a, a six and a nine that are very open now as opposed to a closed grotesque form. Mm -hmm. That came from that kind of observation. We got lucky in that way. And you're absolutely right that sometimes if somebody goes, I don't like this, but I don't know why, then you're thrown back onto the problem of going, so you get your pencil out and you're like, is it like this or is it like this? Is it like this? Or 
you know, maybe you show them references of other fonts. That you, but you have to figure it out. You have to find the font, and then you have to show it to them. So you're doing a lot more legwork than, than we ultimately had to do. We didn't have to do as much because they had already done this, this typographic research. Yeah. I mean, I also find it will always be impossible to have a, I mean, unless you're like drawing for another type designer, which, you know, why aren't they drawing it then? <laughs> but you know, like, I think they were, the, they were the best case possible scenario is really what I'm trying to say. But there's also a limit to like, there's this give and take with clients, right? Some of them don't, haven't done any homework or say anything, but generally you just want people to be able to describe like poetically what they kind of want, because mm-hmm. then it's your job to sort of realize the poetry visually. And they had that. Plus they had the tech, they had at least like, you know, a smattering of technical needs. And because we had these constraints and it was no constraints for, yeah. for the whole thing, like, it's like, well, we have the racetrack. It's just about winning the race basically, rather than which road do we take? <laughs> like, how, where are we even going? And it's like, no, we know where we're going. We know what kind of car we're driving. It's just, we have to drive the car correctly. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very petrochemical it's <laughs> such a bad metaphor it's like oh yeah we, we dumped the hydrocarbons into our formula one car and we just like, we started zooming around i mean you guys mentioned it was a very incredibly fast timeline record speed i actually don't know the timeline how long did spline sands take from start to finish two-ish months whoa months, two and a half months really? Yeah, we're not kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It's really surprising. But all of these things that go into a process, which will drag things back, you know, longer feedback cycles and so on, an absence of a clear brief, you know, all of these things really stretch things out quite a lot. There's another thing, too. When we made this design, the client allowed us to make it just for Eastern and Western Europe. That's a very good point to bring up. We don't support Vietnamese in there yet. And there's a lot of things, because one of the things that people might not know about what's happened in type in the last 10 years or even 20 years is that we've gone from making types which were really very limited in what they could do to really having a kind of uh, almost like an arms race of how many new features and how much more support can we build into these things. Types are incredibly capable now compared to what they were even 10 years ago in general. The standards that we have for these things are much, much higher. Mm -hmm. And so by pairing back sort of what we're trying to accomplish in terms of language support, we're also able to get things taken care of quite quickly. But that doesn't preclude adding to it later. You know, yeah. it could be it could be because it's an open source project, then it's it's perfectly easy to, to do that later. That's the hope. And there's a huge debate there, right? Which I don't know if we need to touch on too much, but just to acknowledge that there is a really big question of like, what are we morally sort of required or what ought we to do with our type projects, right? How much support should we add? And I think as much as possible, <laughs> given constraints is like the right answer. And it is open. So if people feel like it a lot and feel that their language uh, isn't being supported, you know, open an issue. There are people out there who fund those sorts of things without getting too specific who, and, you know, obviously we'd love to <laughs> go back and do more language support yeah, at some point. I would like to add full support for African American and Southeast Asian languages in, in the future. That would be really great. Something we've been looking to, you were asking about tools earlier. We've even bigger question is like, okay, well, now that fonts support or have the ability and it, people have started doing it in a real way to support lots and lots of language subsets, well, how do you know? 
that your font has those things, right? And we started using Hyperglot recently, but in conjunction with like a bunch of other tools. And I think it's still sort of an open, difficult question as to how do you test for linguistic support? And the tools themselves are not perfect even still, but you can significantly trust what Hyperglot tells you about things. I did file two bugs with the maker. Um, <laughs> that's Rosetta type, if people are curious. But that's a good thing because, I mean, the fact that they're open to new data. And the reality, too, is that if you have a language where there's only, like, let's say, 5 million speakers and they're you know, not in an um, economically advantageous position, and the world, they're not part of the global north, the wealthy north, then finding information about what it is that their language really needs isn't always that easy. Yeah, there was an Indonesian language that I was trying to research because the result that I was getting from Hyperglot was confusing to me. So I did my best full court press to like resolve the question. And I don't think I got a perfect answer because there isn't that much data actually that you can even chew on. And this goes into like where you're saying like we got it done in record time, but I guess the actual answer to like when are things done and type is like, well, it's never yeah. done. So it's done for what it's supposed to do right now. Yeah. But it, it could do so much more and all type, not this is like broader than just like, oh, we'd like to do more. It's like I think everybody could do a lot more <laughs> in terms of language support. But yeah. it's a lot of pushing on the people with the the purse strings. And that's a complicated question. I mean, as a type designer, you have to ask yourself, is it better to do something and do it imperfectly and make something available, or does you need to do it perfectly because of your designer and you do things very, very well? And I think that if you have a language that has a character that's unfamiliar, you can look at what other people have done and make mm. your take on it. But that's part of the, you know, the richness of the Latin script typography and the fact that we have all these typefaces means that there are lots of solutions for A's and G's and, you know, and it's that richness of different approaches to these letters and to optical size and all the things that we have, this sort of embarrassment of riches that is Latin typography comes as a result of having plenty of types where somebody said, yeah, I don't like that. Instead, we have this other thing. So making that initial set of things for a language is a good thing. Even if somebody says, I don't like it, now you have more data. Now somebody's reacted to something, now it can be improved. So it's better just to make these things and not try to get them too perfect, you know, especially if that's getting in the way of your making them. So we're, we're straying from the whole thing here, but uh, it does feel a lot like one of those like Porter machines that has the giant normal parlor game sized cabinets that have the, the pushing wall of like quarters and you put yes. a quarter in and it kind of pushes it. It's like, I think that's sort of the, like, yes, you do a lot of effort and your font is the quarter and the silly metaphor, <laughs> like, <laughs> but then like pushing things forward, actually, it's this huge ocean of, so I think we can do our best and then hope that it, it progresses things little by little and eventually have a, a better scene for language support is my hope. This is away from the general uh, thrust of this. In general, we're talking about that a lot too. Type design is becoming more global. There's more accessibility to education now more than ever. I mean, you guys collaborated on Typeface totally remotely. People are learning type design totally remotely. It's no longer constrained to certain places. So how now that education and typography is expanding, how do we get mm -hmm. more people using type and making type for underrepresented scripts? It's a very real conversation. It's one of the more important ones we should be having anyways, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah absolutely. absolutely. I'm glad you guys touched on that. I'm not um, sure how. <laughs> Somehow. <yeah. laughs> it has to happen. I don't know how we're going to make it happen. but Exactly. But yeah, if we talk about it, we'll, we'll find our way.
Yeah. The other thing too about this project is that we got the okay to tell you about something else that's coming along. Oh yes. Next, Please do. which is <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, Spline Sands Mono <gasps> okay. um, for coders, and so the Git repo for that is public now, isn't it? Yep, and yep. it just it's getting merged, so it should be up. Maybe by the time if you're listening to this now, look at Google <laughs> Spline Sands Mono. It might be up. You never know. But yeah, we've pushed updates also, I should say, to um, uh, Spline Sands, the font we're talking about. We made some improvements to spacing, and I think there were some small like character fixes, Evan, right, that we, we touched on. We touched on a few. We, went we, back we found and, some places where you know we wanted things to be more precisely aligned. And yeah, there are lots of little tweaks that we found that we wanted to put in after the fact. And that's the beauty of open sourcing stuff. It's like actually, like no, you can go and see like the history of the thing. You can go and see as like changes get made. Speaking of like language support, we changed things about the vertical metrics. Uh, we did testing on this too. We found out like, oh no, it doesn't actually shift it that much, but it will give us just that like tiny little hairline of like room for extra language support in the future. But we just we just pushed Spline Sans Mono, so it should be should be up there. That's exciting. That's exciting. People should try it out. You can use it before it's on Google Fonts, right? Like you can search yeah. like Sorkin type Spine Sense Mono and it'll be there. Exciting to see where that goes. And that project is kind of funny because where Spine Sense UI is quite chilly, I think Spine Sense Mono is like almost like a little affectionate compared to most monospaces. Would you say that's true? <laughs> we haven't really talked about the personality of it, but I was really, I was surprised that even though it really is based on Spine Sense UI, that's where it began and it's meant to pair nicely with it. It does have kind of a different personality. I use it in terminal, right? I mean, it's a family, right? But just because you're you have a brother, it doesn't mean your brother is you. Yes, <laughs> he's yes. got different interests, or your sister might like, you know, or a cousin or something. I think I'm not going to stretch this too far, but like, <laughs> uh, your family members aren't you? They're different. Yeah, it's different and good. It occupies a different space, but it. A mono space, for example, <laughs> it's not proportional, which was oh yeah, <laughs> it was fun. But it, I mean, in making it, we really didn't have a brief about like what the feeling was supposed to be, except that it needed to come from or sort of spring organically from Spine Sense UI. And yes, yeah, so the the personality of it is a little bit more accidental, but I'm happy with it. I feel really good about it. Its personality is informed so much by the original personality. Well, I don't know. Accidental, maybe. Maybe accidental. I'm excited for people to check it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now I'm curious what people will, will, their... will think about it and if it yeah. is good for coding. I and mean, we're, we're hoping it's a good tool for its yeah. purpose. That's exciting. I want to wrap up the interview with a broader question that uh, I think will is always good to ask. So Spline Sands is a custom font. Custom typography helps type designers get business. It's a great thing. We love it. But like at the end of the day, why would you say a custom font was a good fit for the Spline team rather than an already existing font? Like why put in the effort? Which I think is a question type designers should always be asking. Custom typography is great and it pays the bills a lot of the times and um, it's great, but it's a lot of work. And why would you say that that was the right move for Spline? Well, I think there's two reasons that companies will sometimes make a custom font. Sometimes it's just so that they don't have to pay licensing fees. Mm -hmm. And that's not a great reason for doing it really. Um, and especially if you, you know, you care about the, the power of your typography or you're trying to get real value from your typography. 
Um, so that, that feels like a, a kind of a mistake on a couple of different levels. This is really the, the polar opposite. This was really them trying to get the exact right feeling and the right, exact right functionality. Um, and I think those are both good reasons and to do them together is even better. One more reason is also they're like extremely committed to providing tools for designers to express themselves. Right. Mm. And so like, not only is this a font for them, it's a font for everyone else. Not even, it just even people who don't use spine. Right. But, um, yeah, it's, it's both of those things. Right. And it's everything I've been uh, touched on. The other reason that it's a great custom project uh, for them is that it meets a kind of a business need for marketing and promotion. If a typeface becomes really ubiquitous and it's associated with a particular company, then it reminds people of that company. And so mm -hmm. it's a kind of a very low key, kind of very soft power kind of marketing, I think. But nevertheless, it's useful in that way as well. And on the question of which is like the maybe the parent of the question you're asking about, well, why do they need a custom font? The parent question being like, why do we need more fonts ever? <laughs> right? Yes. And I think, Evan, you have a story of, you know, your answer to this. I think every type designer has like a a rehearsed answer for this for like parties. Yeah, but Frida liked, <laughs> liked like this story. So we said we would tell it again. And it's a true story. I was going to uh, TypeCon in Buffalo and I had gotten a cab in order to get to the, the venue. And the cab driver said to me, you know, where are you going? And I think we looked a little odd coming in that day or something. And so she was trying to figure out what's up. She said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to a type conference. She said, you know, what's that? And so I explained, I make typefaces. And she goes, no, you don't. What do you really do? <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. There's a whole industry that makes new typefaces. And she said, but we have a lot of typefaces. Why do we need new ones? And I, I said to her, you know, well, we have a lot of love songs that they play on the radio. Should they stop making new songs for the radio? And she said, oh, no, that would be terrible. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, imagine if we were still listening to like, I mean, on Blueberry Hill or whatever, it's a great song. But if that was the only song <laughs> since then, we'd be a little sad. Or may, I don't know, maybe we'd all just really, really like that song. <laughs> <laughs> if you take this analogy to the logical extreme, it's sort of weird, right? Like, well, we have three songs now, and we only ever play those songs. We, we might all just fall into, like, the camp of, like, well, I like this song, and you like that song, and I'm first song, your second song. But <laughs> I think humans are too creative for that. I think, I think humans would get to the point where they're like, you know what? I'm going to be rebellious and make a fourth song. Cause a I fourth can't. song? Really? <laughs> no way. <laughs> what know, a like revolution. Every, everybody's version of making even covers of existing love songs, yeah. right? Like you're putting yeah. your expression into it and your creativity into it. And somebody's going to love the cover despite loving the original song too. Right. Yeah. I would say there's there's a million different reasons. They don't always overlap with your specific project, but humans create things and we should keep creating things and hopefully creating things to high standards and useful things. You know, there's even projects that you should do that even if they're not useful, I think there's like something really nice about making a bunch of bad drawings. And then <laughs> then you've made a bunch of bad drawings. <laughs> Then you've learned, you've learned from that process. Right. But we yeah. were lucky enough to make a bunch of drawings we really love. So like, that's even better. We got lucky this time. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And Evan, that's an incredible story. I feel like I got to take that with me. I'm always trying to think of new reasons to tell people why we got to have more fonts and 
for parties. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right, everyone. That was incredible. I felt like I learned so much about the process behind Spline Sands, also the process of creating a youth iFont in general. I think our audience is just going to love hearing from two just so well-spoken guests today. Oh my gosh, you guys were both so articulate in talking about all the aspects. I'm very impressed and I, I think this one's for the books. If people want to try out Spline Sands and Spline Sands Mono, they can uh, Spline Sands is for sure on Google Fonts by the time this release, Spline Sands Mono. Yeah. You can find yeah. it on GitHub. Also, if you want to see Spline Sands in use, it looks great on the Spline website, spline.design. I was like, right. oh my God. Yeah, use Spline. Get yeah. Out there, make something 3D. Yeah. Any final parting notes from the, either of you? Any call to actions for anyone now that, that, now that Spline Sands is out? Oh, I don't know. Submit bugs so we can improve the font. Any ways to follow along with what you guys are working on, maybe? Yeah, go to, um, you know, file issues on the GitHub if you find any issues. We'd love to hear about them because uh, we like doing work. <laughs> we love working. Um, no, you know, hire us, hire us for things. That's the that's the common <laughs> call to action, right? Like we love drawing type. If you need type drawn, you know, <laughs> We're always happy to pick up clients. Um, use Spline, obviously. <laughs> I mean, check out Sorkin Type, but check out check Abyss out type. type, check yeah. out Jordan Studio, right? Like all yeah. that stuff to keep track of the great work that you guys are doing. Yeah. Thanks again for coming here and being and being so wonderful, guys. It was great having you. And uh, everybody go check out Splant Sands so you can see what we're talking about. Thanks for having us. Do-do-do. Do-do-do. Do-do-do.